Good evening and welcome to the Speakeasy Podcast. I am your host, Constance Willard, and again, we are here to present and discuss breast cancer among men and women, because yes, it affects both men and women. As we all know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but what I want the listening audience to know and to understand that even though October is coming to an end, the fight continues. The fight against breast cancer continues. And here at the Speakeasy, we will continue the fight against this dreadful disease. This evening, I have an amazing panelist here with us. She's coming. She is a breast cancer survivor, and she's also a holistic health coach for women. And her name is Nicole D. Surratt. And I'm going to bring Nicole up to the stage and let her share her journey with this dreaded disease and what she's doing now in the fight and to continue the fight against breast cancer. And so, Nicole, good evening. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome to the Speakeasy. And thank you for being willing to come and to share your story to help so many others and to educate the public. And so just kind of tell the audience who you are, Nicole, and what it is that you do. Sure. Um, Again, my name is Nicole DeSoret. I am an inspirational speaker and author, and I am a health coach. Uh, My company is called A Health Coach For Me. I am a holistic health coach supporting women's wellness. I help women decrease stress, increase self-care, and embrace lifestyle changes. And my why is that I am a breast cancer thriver, and I don't want women to wait until they get a diagnosis of any type, whether it's breast cancer, heart disease, diabetes. I don't want those chronic health conditions to be the wake-up calls that force women to pay more attention to their health and wellness practices. Yes, and that is so true because, and that, like you said, it's not only for breast cancer, it's for anything. You know, especially when you know your history, your family history, and the things that you've seen relatives go through, like hypertension, diabetes, whatever. If you know you have that in your background, get yourself checked regularly. And women, own your breasts. They're yours. So own them. Do your breast self-exams. Own it. This is your body. This is your temple. Own it. This is the temple that God gave you. Own it. And when you own something, you take care of it. You take care of it. So, Nicole, I just want you to kind of just walk us through your journey with breast cancer. You know, what was going on at the time you were diagnosed? You know, what led you to the diagnosis? Sure, sure. So I celebrated my 11th cancer anniversary in June. Yes. And for me, the diagnosis was very much a surprise based on how I had been taking care of myself since high school. I never drank. I never smoked. I exercised regularly. I ate properly and I got this diagnosis. So not only was a breast cancer diagnosis, it was an advanced stage diagnosis at that. I woke up one morning, was getting ready to go to work and the breast looked different. And I just thought, oh, it's pajama lines. So I just got dressed, went on to work and did what I needed to do after work. And when I got home that evening and noticed that 
it still looked different. You know, I'm like, okay, pajama lines don't last all day. Something is going on. So one of my good friends is a nurse. I called her up, told her what was going on. She said, tomorrow morning, call your OBGYN. So I did. And they said, um, the first availability is next month. When I got home from work, I called my girlfriend again. She said, call them back. Tell them it's an emergency. And I did. And I was able to get a, uh, an appointment the next week. So, you know, I could tell from the OBGYN's face that she was concerned just like I was. And I had what they call an inverted nipple. So the, the breast nipple looks pushed in. And, you know, sometimes people think it's just about a lump. No, there are other signs that something is, is wrong. It could be discharge from the nipple, discharge that's not uh, breast milk. It could be redness, swelling. It could even be some tenderness or lumps under the arm because you have lymph nodes under your arm. So I don't want your listeners and your viewers to think it's just a lump. If I don't have a lump, then I'm good. If anything looks off, we you, it's worth investigating. So as you, you were telling people at the beginning of the show to know your breasts. Nobody knows your body like you. We need to know what our breasts look like and feel like. And the minute that you see or feel something different, that's red flag enough. So, you know, I go from the OBGYN to getting an, um, a biopsy. And I got that call at work a few weeks later that uh, it was cancer. And again, very much a surprise to me. And uh, to anybody who knew me, based on, again, how I had been taking care of myself. But I will say, Ms. Constance, that I knew that there was purpose in my diagnosis from the very beginning. Um, you know, yes, I did cry. And I'll say, and I, and I share this in my book, is that, you know, God got my attention. And he reminded me that all of the years that I spent on Separated Street and Divorce Drive, he took care of everything that my children and I needed. And I realized, yeah, he did all of that and so much more. He can handle a breast cancer diagnosis. So at that point, my goal became living by any means necessary. And they thought I was maybe a stage zero or one. So there are five stages of breast cancer, zero through four. And I was a candidate for a procedure called IORT intraoperative radiation therapy. So they remove the tumor, administer radiation on the table, and that's it. No additional radiation and no chemotherapy. And I thought, well, this is great because I ain't got time for cancer. I got places to go, people to see, things to do. This is great. And so that procedure was supposed to be simple. Supposed to be. When I came out from under the anesthesia, I was informed that the cancer spread beyond what the test results revealed initially. And I went from a zero, maybe a one, to the other end of the spectrum to a 3C. So an aggressive cancer, which would require aggressive treatment, which started with chemotherapy. And uh, the following month, as I waited for my first six plus hour chemo treatment, I received a phone call from the nursing home in which my mother resided on the Alzheimer's unit that as her caregiver and power of attorney, they needed me to sign the paperwork to start the hospice process. And a few weeks later, I lost my mom and it was a whole lot that I needed to manage. 
Um, my Both of my children were in college at the time. Um, I am not an only child, but there's more than 20 years between me and my late brother and sister, same parents. <laughs> and so everything fell on me and all of my family lives in DC or in that area. So I had a lot on my plate, you know, trying to work full time, going to chemotherapy every week. Chemotherapy just left me too weak to clean my house, to cook my meals. And I'll have to tell you, Miss Constance, that me and my superwoman complex, I was too proud to ask for help. Mm. And uh, so my what should have taken six months of treatment actually took a year and a half because I had a whole lot of delays. I had issues with low white blood cell counts. So if my counts are too low, it's not safe to administer chemotherapy. So they gave me one week off so that my body could kind of recoup. One week turned into two weeks, the three weeks to a whole month. And then finally, my team said, we can't do this anymore. We're going to need to go back in. And the, the, that surgery, they wanted to what they call clear the margins. And so my options were to have another lumpectomy or to have a mastectomy. And I said to my surgeon, what do you think your chances are of clearing the margins? And he said, 85%. I said, that's the chance I want to take. And so he was able to do that successfully. So I didn't have to get a mastectomy. I did have radiation, had an issue with what they call a skin breakdown. So they can't administer the radiation. And uh, that was a problem because my son was getting ready to graduate from college out of state. And I told them, I am not missing that boy's graduation. Y'all gonna have to figure out something to do. <laughs> so um, I was able to attend his graduation and I did finish my chemo. And actually, to this date, my white blood cell counts are still low. So they don't know if, it, if they were low because of chemotherapy or if I was just low from the beginning. Yeah. And so um, that's, that's the, 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 long, the, the short story of my 11 plus year journey. OK, well, thank you. And I'm glad that you said what you did when you were saying about the symptoms and about the lump, that there's not always a lump. And that's what we have been conditioned to think. Yes. That it's always a lump. But I'm learning more and more each day that it's more than that. A lot of times there is no lump. It's a lot of things going on. And so my main goal, and I'm glad you also said that there was purpose in your diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know why. And I'm talking about myself, really, as a believer, knowing what God can and will do. When something happens, it's kind of like, oh, my God, we sit back. And we don't realize at that moment that purpose is at work. Yes, yes, yes. We don't realize that. And so I'm so glad you said that, that there was, you knew that there was purpose in what you were going through. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that. Like you said, you had been on separation street and this street and that street and God brought you through that. So, hey, mm -hmm. why can't he bring you and why won't he bring you through this? And so I thank you so much for sharing that. And so how... Knowing that purpose was in your diagnosis and what you were going through and the different roadblocks that you encountered, how did that kind of lead you to the state where you are now as far as your advocacy that you're doing mm -hmm. and becoming a holistic health coach? Sure, know? sure. Again, because I knew that there was purpose. Now, it took me a couple of years to figure out that purpose. Um, actually, <laughs> right. I was working, as I mentioned, full time. But my job was stressful and I realized that I could not fight cancer and the people on the job. 
So I walked away from the job. I finished all of my uh, treatments and then I started looking for a job and couldn't find a job. And so I'm like, okay, God, I got it. I need to be on this platform promoting health and wellness as a lifestyle because again, it was a surprise to me. It was a surprise to family and friends, anybody who knew me, um, you know, in terms of the, the, what, physicians recommend that you do and don't do to avoid a diagnosis. If you were to open one of their books, you would have seen my picture because I was leading what I thought was a healthy lifestyle. Wow. But once I got through, you know, the cancer treatment or as I was going through it, you know, I thought that I was handling my stress. So stress from a divorce, stress from being a caregiver of my mom. Now I have a diagnosis. Again, I thought I was managing my stress. And I realized, Miss Constance, I was just really busy. So I'm like, okay, so so now I got it. You know, I so I believe that stress played a huge role in my diagnosis. And stress is an epidemic. And you know, people don't realize the impact that stress can have on you because you may not see it outwardly. And you know, it doesn't make a difference where you look, stress is just everywhere. It can be the traffic. It can be the money or the lack thereof. It can be the job, the coworker, the boss, the, the children, the husband. Sometimes it's the husband, Miss Constance. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got stress coming in different areas. And I'm like, okay, I want to be on this platform because, you know, people were surprised that it happened to me. But there are a whole lot of people that aren't taking good care of themselves. So it can happen to anybody. And yes. I'm glad that you mentioned at the start of the program about men getting breast cancer. If you have breasts, you can get breast cancer. Exactly. The same way if you have skin, you can get skin cancer, regardless of the amount of melanin in your skin. So men have less breast tissue. So their chances of getting breast cancer is much, um, it, there's a greater margin you know, for women, it's one in eight. For men, I want to say only about 2% of all breast cancers men get. So we've got to keep that in mind. And so my thought is, okay, I believe that we are modern day superwomen dealing with a modern day kryptonite called stress. Mm -hmm. And we combat stress through self-care. So I help women see that self-care is not selfish, but it's essential to every aspect of our health and wellness and when I use the word health, I think a lot of people, Miss Constance, think, oh, health is just the physical. No, no, no. no, no, no. Health is the physical, the mental, emotional, spiritual, financial, occupational, relational. It's all of that. And we make the mistake of seeing those areas in isolation without realizing how interconnected they are. And if one is out of sync, there's the possibility that they all can fall down as dominoes. So I'm, I'm helping women to see that self-care is something we need to do daily. Yes, it's nice to go get your hair done. It's nice to go get your nails done. But we need to be taking care of ourselves every day, even if it's just five minutes. Five minutes to go outside and inhale and exhale. Five minutes to sit down and read a chapter in a book. Because the truth of the matter is, when you're stressed out, Everybody knows about it. Mm -hmm. So when you take a few minutes or longer, and I'm hopeful we can get to longer, to take care of yourself, when you come back refreshed and rejuvenated, then everybody with whom you live, work, and play, they all benefit. And so um, that led me to becoming a health coach. Um, I always, I'm a former educator. 
I spent 25 years in the field. And as I'm participating and, and starting to speak professionally, you know, I'm in the National Speakers Association. I'm doing Toastmasters things. And, and I always just felt like I'm in the presence of people who have all of these letters in front of their names and behind their names. I need to go back to school and get some type of a degree. But of course, I didn't have that kind of time or money because I wanted to, to, to make a difference right away. And people would say to me, but Nicole, you have something that some of those other people, most of those other people don't have, which is lived experience. Exactly. So they said, don't worry about getting another degree. Just go ahead out there and speak. So that's what I was doing until COVID. So COVID comes and it shuts down, you know, my speaking engagements and it really gave my time time. So, I mean, I do presentations virtually, but it's nothing like being in front of a live audience. Yes. So yes. I went back to school and I graduated uh, from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. And I am a holistic health coach supporting women's wellness. So I look at the whole woman, not just whatever's going on physically. That might be why she comes to me. But by the time we start to peel back the layers, we might talk about some relational things. We may talk about some environmental stressors. We may have a conversation about the negative self-talk that we do. So we, I'll cover the whole woman and, um, you know, whatever the health, health goals they have. And my job is, you know, if you think about football or basketball, I'm the coach. I'm going to help them create the plays and help them come up with the strategies but they're going to get on the field. They're going to get on the court and they're going to execute knowing that I'm going to be their biggest cheerleader and I'm going to be their accountability partner. Wow. Wow. And, you know, again, self-care. And a lot of people have this misconception that, oh, I take care of myself. You know, I go get my nails done every two weeks and I do this and I do that. But it's about that mind, body and soul. I'm so glad you said that. Mm -hmm. Self-care is spiritually or is your, how is your prayer life? Are you meditating? Are you in the word as you should be? Do you have that relationship with God that you should have? If not, are you working towards that? Self-care encompasses a whole lot. And I like the holistic approach. And I was talking to a friend of mine's daughter, and she is now seeing a holistic medicine provider. Mm -hmm. And she was you know, telling me some of the things that they were asking her. And one thing, they went back as far as her childhood. You know, say, can can you remember anything or any discourse that was going on in your household at that time? Or was there anything specific? Because all that is important. And I'm like, never thought about that, but they're absolutely right. So you're right. It's the whole total person. Absolutely. And it's not just experiences, because a lot of people have what they call ACEs. There's a there's a test that you take. It's called ACEs. And it's um, it's the advanced um, uh, childhood experiences. So, you know, if you have something traumatic happen when you're young, how that mm -hmm. impacts you when you get older. So it's not just those experiences. It's even some of the things that you ate growing up and your preferences now as an adult. Um, we're not even talking about obesity anymore. The new term is globesity because mm -hmm. obesity is now a global epidemic. Yes, Countries it is. Countries that used to have issues with starvation now have issues with obesity. And in America, you know, as a as a former educator, excuse me, I, I love to do things with acronyms. And so in America, it's called the standard American diet. 
S-A-D. Literally and figuratively, it is sad. Mm-hmm. Our diets are too high in sugar, too high in processed and packaged foods, too high in sodium. So where we are now, we've got a whole lot of footprints that led us to where we are right now. And you said something earlier, Ms. Constance, that's really important. At the very beginning, you talked about family medical history. That's probably the beginning of it all. Mm-hmm. It's because we are not having conversations about family medical history. And I tell my audiences, especially, and I love to talk to audiences that have uh, a religious association because then I don't have to filter myself. I know that I am where I am and I am who I am only because of who God is. I'm, I'm exactly. clear on all of that. And I say that, you know, in decades ago, you know, cancer was the big C. We kind of hush hush about it, swept it under the carpet. But I tell people, cancer is just a little C. Mm-hmm. The big C is Jesus Christ and him alone. Okay. And so I realized that in terms of my purpose with this diagnosis, that cancer didn't happen to me. It happened for me because I was created on purpose, with purpose, to fulfill purpose, and cancer can't kill purpose. Amen. And as I call it, our dash. What is our dash? Our divine assigned series in history, because we're making history right now. I'm writing that down. Oh, oh, oh. So, <laughs> I like that. You know, and what made me think about it was, you know, when, when Queen Elizabeth passed away and I was looking at, you know, the different coverage on her and her life and from the time of the, a, a young um, royal leader, you know, to the time that she passed away. And I said, you know, 70 years. And I remember the speech that she made at her coronation about she had was pledging her life to the country, no matter how short or how long. So she had 72 years on the throne. I said, that's a long time. And I said, but you know, I said, Jesus was here 33 years. His dash was much shorter. Yes. But yet, look at the impact that short dash is still having. Absolutely. In the lives of everybody today, 2,000 years later. So it doesn't matter about the length of your dash. Okay. It's about the purpose and the intent that you operate under within that dash. So Nicole, I say to you, your dash, okay? And you you were saying about going back to school. I love it when people say that. You know what? My theory is education is a good thing. I love education too, but it's not the alphabets in the soup that make it taste good. <laughs> that sounds like a t-shirt, Miss Constance. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not the alphabet <laughs> in like the soup that. that gives it taste, okay? It's the savor of the other ingredients, the vegetables and the meats. The alphabet is just an extra. Yeah. It, it brings no flavor, but it's the other thing. So you have a message, you have a purpose, and no degree determines that. No degree determines our purpose. And a degree may enhance it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Take away the degrees and take the alphabet out of that soup. The soup still has it going on because you have purpose. Amen. And so I want you to keep doing what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I love how you're getting out there and you're educated because the public needs it. Mm -hmm. 
And so my thing is for young men and women coming up now, you know, they, they don't think that we're a different generation. They don't think the way we think. They don't see things the way we see things. But yet the same things impact them or affect them the same way. Cancer affects them the same way. And so since I have been doing this series this month, and I'm like, wow, I need to educate my son yeah. on breast cancer in males. I need to educate him on that. You know, I have a grandson now. I need to educate when he's old enough, start educating him on that. Right. And so as a former educator like myself, you know, how do we get that word out there? to reach the masses? How do we engage them in the necessary discussion to help them to save their lives or save yeah. the lives of someone that they love? Got it. Before I answer that question, Ms. Constance, can I go back to something I said? Sure. Um, I just thought I, I said the wrong word. ACEs is adverse childhood experiences, okay. adverse childhood experience. I just want to make, make that correction. You know, we, again, we've, we need to start the conversations we need to know about family history, not only on the mom's side, but on the dad's side as well, um, because there are some male cancers like prostate cancer that have a connection to breast cancer. So we need to not only just verbalize that history, we need to write it down. And I think, again, as a former educator, that if we don't do that, it's a disservice to the next generation. Yes. Because if you know that, let's say, high blood pressure runs in the family. If I know that at a younger age, or even if my parents know that at a younger age, that should change what I'm fed or what I'm exposed to. Because we don't want to wait until we get a diagnosis to start making those changes. We need to be proactive instead mm -hmm. of reactive about exactly. our health. If we wait until we get a diagnosis, it's probably going to be more difficult to treat and it's probably going to cost more money. So let's, let's again, be proactive. So let's start at younger ages. You know, if there are issues with salt and sugar and all of that, we really need to get back to eating to live instead of living to eat. And the approach should be to live, to eat as if our lives depend on it because it really does. And we have to understand that companies that produce these products they don't care about our waistlines. No. They care about their bottom line. So we have to be educated consumers. We need to be able to read those product labels and understand what we're putting in our bodies. And if you pick, I know me personally, if I pick up something and it's too high in sugar, too high in sodium, too high in fat, it's going back on the shelf. Because for me, I realize that I'm fighting cancer every day with the decisions that I make. What to eat, not to eat, drink, not drink, exercise, not exercise. The people I allow in my circle, the amount of stress I allow in my life, I'm making a decision every day. We all are. And I want people to make a decision that's going to move them closer to wellness as opposed to illness. And for the most part, we're making decisions that are leading us towards illness. So in terms of our young people, having the family conversations. Um, I think that's very important. The other thing is what I'm finding out with some of the work that I do with local, local and national cancer organizations and some of the work that I do on Capitol Hill, breast cancer is impacting younger women more and more frequently. Mm. And 
we need to have the conversations. I I'll share this with you, Miss um, Constance. There are some things that we can do to reduce our risk of breast cancer. So I'll call them, I call them the ABCDEs of breast cancer. So A is for alcohol. Alcohol increases your risk of breast cancer. So with the work that I'm doing locally, we already knew that in some of the campaigns that we are releasing into the community, but studies are showing a greater cor correlation between alcohol and increased risk of breast cancer. So my thought is as an educator, we need to have conversations with our young ladies in college. And again, we can't wait until our young people become young adults to start having conversations about stress management and self-care. Mm -hmm. So to let them know that alcohol can increase your risk of breast cancer. So that's A. B is breastfeeding. Breastfeeding reduces your risk of breast cancer. So not only does it in increase the bond or improve the bond between mom and child, it saves you a whole lot of money, especially if we have another formula shortage exactly. and, it reduces, <laughs> and it reduces your risk of breast cancer. So that's a win-win all the way around. <laughs> C is all about the chronic stress um, and stress. Not all stress is bad. There is a good stress. It's called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. So that's when you're going on, on stage for a performance or you've got to give um, a big report and the butterflies are going in your stomach. But then when you've come off the stage or you finish your presentation, the butterflies settle down. So that's acute stress. It's temporary. It's the chronic stress that's long-term that's leading to chronic health conditions like the high blood pressure, the heart disease, the diabetes, the depression, the anxiety, the obesity, and the cancer. So we need to know our triggers and we need to have plans in place. So if you know that you're a stress eater and you're, you're dealing with a stressful situation and the cookie jar is calling your name, you need to have another plan in place. Maybe you need to have some baby carrots or some apple slices or some celery sticks. But if you're not thinking about it ahead of time and you have a stressful situation and you open a refrigerator and you don't see those baby carrots, the chances are that you're going to get your keys and drive to the store with gas almost $4 a gallon, if not more. That's not going to happen. So we, again, need to be proactive. So we've got to handle chronic stress. D is all about our diet. I alluded to the diet piece um, a little earlier. And actually, Ms. Constance, I don't even like to use the word diet. But since I'm doing an acronym, I need a D word, so I'm using diet. Because people hear the word diet and they think, oh, I can do that. I can go on a two-week diet. Well, that's what they said. Mm -hmm. But what they're thinking is on day 15, I'm going to get a big slab of ribs, a big bucket of cheesy fries, because it's going to end for them. And this is a lifestyle change every day. You don't have to make a, a huge overhaul, but just it's the little changes over time that really amount to much. So that's the D. E is for exercise. We're actually moving away from the word exercise to use the word movement. But again, I needed an E word, so I'm going to use exercise. But it's about moving your body. When people hear exercise, they think, now I got to join a gym. Now I got to spend money on clothes and shoot. No, it's about yeah. moving your body. If you love the garden, that counts. Garden. Walking right. the dog, that counts. Vacuuming counts. And if I could just share a secret with you, just me, you, and your listeners, you can take the stairs 
instead of the elevator or the escalator. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I want people to know that if you're not used to exercising or moving your body, or you want to make some dietary changes, please check with your physician first. And the S is for start today. You know, I believe that, that people know they need to make change, but they can be so overwhelmed by the amount of change they need to make that they just hit the default and they do nothing. And as women, we kind of get caught up wanting to see the whole spiral staircase. We don't move. My thing is, let's just take the one step. Take the one step. When we finish that one step, then we worry about the next step as opposed to what's at the bottom of the spiral staircase. So instead of thinking, well, one day I'll stop smoking and one day I'll change my eating habits and one day I'll have that challenging conversation with a family member, move from one day to day one. And let's just get started taking better care of ourselves. Yes, exactly, exactly. And for someone who struggled with obesity for 47 years, mm -hmm. I, I, you're right, it's a lifestyle. It's not a diet because I had dieted all of those 47 years and was successful, but put it right back on, was not able to sustain. But when I made the lifestyle change, right, I'm heading into year 13 or keeping the weight off. So yeah, so it's a lifestyle. It really is. It's a lot. And for me, it wasn't, I didn't really change what I ate. I changed portions. I taught myself portion control. Mm -hmm. And so it's about figuring out what your triggers are, you know, what's going to work for you. And, make, and like you say, start one step at a time. Yeah. I tell people Rome was not built in one day. Right, right. You did not gain 50 pounds in one day. And so we so, can't expect to lose it overnight. Exactly, exactly. You know, and so I, I love the things that you're saying as far as the exercise and the movement. And it doesn't mean joining a gym. Hey, if you're a 60s baby or a 70s baby, put some Al Green on and clean your house up. I promise you, <laughs> you're going to get a workout. I promise you, because you're going to start reminiscing about what dance was out at that time. And you're going to try to do it while you're cleaning. Good workout. So there's different things that we can do to make that first step toward wellness. And so I thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, we talked about stress. And you were saying with young women, but, you know, our little kids are stressed. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. Because you know, when COVID hit, yes. when COVID hit, we thought it was going to be two weeks. You know, children were going to come home and, and two weeks turned into two months and two months and here we are at two plus years. Mm -hmm. I put my teacher hat on. I got on social media because I thought, oh, my goodness, parents and guardians are not going to know what to do with their little people. Mm -hmm. So I started giving them things that they could do at home. Go in the kitchen and make something. It's a recipe. We're talking math, science, um, vocabulary, all of that. I had a friend who is an, a high school English teacher. And so she did the same for the older grades. And I let families know. Just because they may not have the language, do not think that your little people are not stressed out because they were wondering, why am I home again? I didn't get on the school bus. I don't mm -hmm. see my teacher. I don't see my friends. I didn't put on my uniform. So mm -hmm. they are stressed in their own ways, not only from COVID, just from what's happening with you know, we've got children now who are doing lockdown drills yes. and active shooter drills. Yes, they're stressed out. They're stressed out also with technology. You know, some of these, these children are, are going to bed. They're supposed to have their device off. But, you know, they got their little flashlight and they're on their device. And somebody is posting pictures 
um, on YouTube or not YouTube, but they're posting pictures, let's say on Facebook, or they're doing a video about the party that they're at. Mm -hmm. So this, this teenager is thinking, oh, so-and-so's having a party. I'm here at home. Why wasn't I invited to the party? Is there something wrong with me? You know, so they've got, it's a completely different generation. Yes, it is. And we've got to be sensitive to what they're dealing with. Um, The technology, just the world happenings, all of that, all of that is so major. We, We have to keep, you know, our children and our thoughts and our prayers and their guardians and, and what they're being exposed to yes. because they're exposed to stuff in real time with these games and stuff. You know, they, they see crime, they see violence, but when it happens in your neighborhood, you, you don't get a redo like you do no. on the game. You can't start over again. No. Um, and it's, it's really a sad state of affairs. It is. You know, and I think about children now compared to 60 years ago when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. The things that these kids go through now, I, I couldn't, as an adult now, at my age, imagine the things that they are going through and witnessing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't afraid of going to school and worry about somebody coming in there shooting in the school. Right, right. That, that didn't, you know, we didn't worry about that. We were carefree and, you know, having a good time with our free, we didn't worry about things like that. Well, these kids, that's in the back of their minds. And the first time I went to a high school about five years ago and had to walk through a metal detector, that did something to me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you have to be kidding me. These kids right. are going through this every day, but it's for their safety and protection. So, yes, stress is not just for the adults. Correct. It's for the little ones. Yes. Coming up. It's all kind of stress there for them. So we need to work with them on how to relieve stress because they are fearful of things. And I know as a kid, me personally, when I was fearful of things, I didn't want my parents to know that I was going through that. I didn't want them to have to worry about me, so I kept it to myself. And I right. dealt with it on my own. I'm like, well, I don't want to tell them that I'm afraid about this or this is going on, or you know. So I kept it to myself. And so all that internal stress. And so kids go through that. And mm-hmm. as parents and grandparents and guardians and neighbors and whomever, we need to be cognizant of that. Absolutely, we we need to be paying attention. And unfortunately, you know, technology is good, mm-hmm. but there are a whole lot of things about technology that have just changed our society. You know, it. I can remember being in the supermarket and seeing a child in the cart with a book. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to go over there and just thank that mom that the child had a book. You know, I, I, I'm getting better with my technology. But the two-year-old next door could show me a whole lot of things, you know, so they're, they're growing up with the, the cell phones as an extended hand. Um, and we're not putting the cell phones down and, and sitting down at the table, having conversations as a family. How was your day? What's going yes. on? You know, all of that kind of stuff, you know, it, well, if in a lot of families, if they're sitting down, they're sitting down and, um, you know, mom's got her phone and dad's got his phone and it, all at the table. Um, I know when I drive, you know, during the summer and I see, you know, parents, you know, at the park with their children, you know, they're sitting on the bench and the child sitting next to them and, and the parent is on the phone. And my thing is that's the time to have conversations yes. with your children to talk about what you're seeing in, in nature and all of that kind of stuff. And our heads are so down onto these devices that we're missing what's happening 
around us and how our children are changing and and we're missing even the things that they're 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 saying with their body language and in their facial expression we're missing all of that we really are mm -hmm. yes and so getting back onto knowing our health history you know the only time for me just thinking about it, you know how can we do this family reunions if your family is still getting together Mm -hmm. That's a good time prior to is to pass out a questionnaire and collect them to find out the family history. That's a great strategy. We did the that at one of my family unions. Yes, we actually great, had a station. Yeah. We yeah. had a station where because there were some nurses in the family, so we had a station and we had um, little pocket cards where family members could go have their blood pressure taken and things like that. Um, even to to start knowing family history beyond your immediate family, you know, kind of knowing what grandmom and grandpa had yes. to deal with and kind of um, siblings and cousins and things like that. That's, that's, that's really important. I think that's a great idea to yes. do it, um, you know, during a family union, everybody's together. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm still learning things about my family. And I know when I got my um, breast cancer diagnosis, one of the first things they asked me was about family history. And mm -hmm. I was able to go right to my safe and pull it out because I had been having conversations with the matriarch of the family for years. Uh, my father was one of 14 children. And so I would have conversations with the matriarch of the family. And when somebody would pass, I would jot down what it was. And yeah. so that's important. So let me say that when you are denoting family history, you want to know what issues they had, whether it's cancer, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, anything like that, what what this what the chronic health condition was or is, how old they were when they were diagnosed with it, and what type of treatment they had. All of that gets to be important to share with your medical team. Yes. Yes, it is very important. You know, and as I tell people all the time, we're getting back on men and breast cancer. You know, mm -hmm. men tend to hold things in. They don't talk about it because they we talked about the superwoman. Well, we're going to talk about the macho complex now. <laughs> and so men don't talk about things like we do. They tend to suffer in silence and they keep it to themselves. And men do not like going to the doctor. Right. And so I have this project that I do here in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Barbershop Initiative. Because one thing that black men are going to do, they're going to go get that haircut. That's right. And they're they going to they gonna get it. They're going to if they just want to socialize, they go into the barbershop every week. So I said, OK, so I used to take a group of nursing students. We pick a barbershop in Montgomery and we go and set up and we educate. Mm -hmm. And it was good because we had little boys in there. We could talk to them. We had men of all different ages in there. And we a lot, one man was there with his wife and he didn't want to hear. And I told and she was you know telling him to pay attention. I said, don't worry about it. I said, let him ignore it. I said, then when somebody else is sitting in his chair, he's going to be upset because he's not going to be able to sit there anymore. So then he drew up and started listening uh -huh. <laughs> when I said that. But, you know, we have to be creative. Yes. Yes. We really have to be creative. There's not one set way of doing things. We have to be innovative and we have to be creative to get the word out there. So it is my commitment here to, to speak easy. As I said, October may be ending, but the fight for breast cancer continues. It is not ending. We are going to continue to heighten awareness and to provide avenues for education because this is something serious. And another thing that I've discovered since doing this series is the trials, the clinical trials. Yeah. 
Now, our community, we're the ones that's most affected, but yet we're not participating in these trials. So Correct. how do we get good results that's going to help us if they're not using us in the research? Yes. Yeah. So you, you bring up a very important point. Actually, two to three percent of clinical trials um, include women of color. And you're right. White women are diagnosed with breast cancer more frequently, but black women are dying from breast cancer at a 41% rate. At a 39% rate, they are um, getting experiencing a recurrence. And our um, survival rate isn't as good. So you're right. And, and, and people don't understand clinical trials. So as an advocate, that's one of the things that we are you know, trying to get people to understand. And, and you know that in communities of color, our experiences with the medical community in yes. terms of trials and experiments has not been a pleasant one. And so when you talk about clinical trials, they're like, you got to be kidding. I'm not doing any of that. But when I talk to people about it, to, to breast cancer survivors about it, I, I, I want them to see that if we're only two to three percent, okay, let, let me back up a little bit. So black breast cancer is different than other other races. Um, there's actually a, a type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer that is impacting young women of color. And when I say young women, I'm talking about women as young as 25, 26. Wow. So I've heard one too many stories from a young woman to say something didn't look right. Something didn't feel right. I went to the doctor. The doctor said, oh, you're too young for breast cancer. Come back and see me next year. So she returns the next year. Not only is it breast cancer, it's triple negative breast cancer. And now we've, we've wasted, we've lost a year of treatment. Triple negative breast cancer is aggressive and there really are no targeted treatments for it because it's triple negative. So breast cancers are classified based on... Um, hormone receptors. So there's an estrogen receptor. So we call that ER. So it can be positive or negative. Progesterone receptor, PR, positive or negative. And then HER2 new, positive or negative. So when it's positive, then they know kind of, oh, this type of cancer responds best to this combination of chemotherapy drugs. We call that our cocktails. Or this one responds to a combination of chemotherapy and radiation or, or whatever it may be. But because triple negative is negative for estrogen, progesterone, progesterone, and HER2 new, there are no real targeted treatments. So now we've got this young woman with triple negative breast cancer. So, and I tell women, you've got to advocate for yourself. If something doesn't look right, doesn't feel right, and you hear something like that from a dismissive doctor, go find another doctor. Yes, please. Because, and the other thing is with mammograms, with the uh, recommended start point at 40, if I'm 28, I can't afford to wait 12 years for a mammogram because something doesn't look right. I need help now. So yes. that's one of the things that I do when I'm on Capitol Hill is to let our legislators know that, you know, when they're reading something, I don't want them just to read black letters on a white piece of paper. When they're reading about some of the struggles that breast cancer survivors and thrivers are experiencing, I want them to see my face. 
I want them to realize that there are women. They're not, we're not just statistics. We're no. real people. Real so people we need exactly. help. We need you to pass the legislation so that people can get the financial help that they need. And it's not just about surviving breast cancer. It's about your quality of life as well. And for clinical trials, you know, there are some trials that people might be interested in participating in, but maybe let's say they're in another state. Well, I can't afford to travel every month to that other state. So then maybe we need, there needs to be a stipend. Or even if there's a trial in my state, maybe I'm a parent of a young child and you're doing this study or, or you, I have to participate at three o'clock in the afternoon, but I can't do that and pick my child up you know, for after school care or something like that. So there are a whole lot of factors that, that go into this. But people have to understand, women of color need to understand that if black breast cancer is different, which it is, and we only make up two to 3% of the clinical trial population, then the treatments that we're getting aren't studied on us. Yes. So you, we, we encourage people to, women to participate in the clinical trials not just for themselves, but for future generations. And I've been in sessions, Miss Constance, where a woman said, you know, I participated in XYZ clinical trial 25 years ago. And what she participated in was a treatment that I took. So I, I was telling her, thank you. Yes. You know, because you went through that trial, you were a part of that. Now we know that this is a, a treatment that has a good response. I took it 11 plus years. I'm still here. So yeah. we, we've got to see that. We've got to see the correlation. And people also need to understand, Ms. Constance, is when we talk about clinical trials, it's not that one person with breast cancer is getting treatment and somebody else is getting a placebo. That's not how it works. And there's so many more um standards in place so that those bad experiences that that communities of color have experienced in the past so that those type of things never happen again yes. so if you have a very aggressive type of breast cancer or um, a rare breast cancer one of the best places you can be in is involved in a clinical trial yes and you know you, you're talking about the mistrust in our community mm -hmm. 30 miles east of where i'm sitting right now tuskegee Okay. The Tuskegee experiment. And that still is in the minds of a lot of people. And mm -hmm. so I remember when the COVID vaccine came about, yeah. you know, and we had people on the radio here telling the communities, do not trust the government. Do not take the vaccine. It's not safe. Why? Because of what that's in their minds. So we have to educate to elevate and bring people out of those mindsets. You Absolutely. Know, it had, yes, it was wrong. Yes, it did happen. But let's move forward. Things have changed. And let's be a part of the future change. Correct. And the other thing, Ms. Yeah. Constance, is anything that people are taking, if you're taking any prescription medication, if you're taking over-the-counter medication, exactly. they've all gone through trials. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But we don't correlate it like that. We no. don't correlate it like that. No. So. no, we don't. You're absolutely right. And, you know, you touched on something else about you know, livelihood and lifestyles, so forth. You know, I did, I was not aware until I started doing this. And I said, this has been an educational process for me. Mm -hmm. That when a person has cancer and they lose their job or whatever, and they need resources to live, you know, to maintain their household, take care of their kids and so forth, keep a roof over their heads. 
I'm thinking in my mind that the American Cancer Society and Susan G. Coleman, these places were available to provide resources. And I found out after doing this series, that's not the case, mm -hmm. that the money they raise is strictly for research, not for financial assistance of any kind. There may and be some local, some local organizations that can help, but, but mm -hmm. that you have to investigate based on, you know, where right. you live. But, you know, when we talk, you know, to our legislators on Capitol Hill, you know, for example, there are some bills, there are some, some restrictions. So let's say you have an aggressive uh, type of cancer. You have to wait. And I'm, it's been a minute since I've been on Capitol Hill, so I may get all of this kind of the, the timeline wrong, but, and I, I need to brush up on that. You have to wait, let's say six months before you qualify for less, I think it's maybe social security or social security disability insurance. Mm -hmm. So you've got to, you've got to do this six month waiting period and then another two year waiting period. If you have aggressive breast cancer, you don't necessarily have two plus years to no. wait for somebody to, you know, give you financial help. And women, unfortunately, Miss Constance, are having to make a decision. Do I pay out of pocket for something that can possibly save my life? Or do I pay to put clothing on my children's back and food on the table? That's a decision that people should not have to make. Exactly. You know, and President Obama made that, that same point. He said his mother had that same dilemma. You know, when it came to her, you know, do I pay this bill or do I pay for my treatment? That was the same issue that his mother was facing. And that's why he was so for making the change with health care and reforming health care because of that personal experience. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, when I go to Capitol Hill, I'm a voice for my I call them my bosom buddies and my LinkedIn pink sisters. And sometimes survivors don't feel like they have a voice. Well, I can go to Capitol Hill and I can represent them, represent myself and represent them. But we all have a voice with yes. our vote. So we can, you know, we need to know where people stand on these issues. People who are running for office, where, mm -hmm. where they stand and then make a decision on what's important for you and your family. And do they support that or not? Exactly. And as I tell people, all elections are important. But focus mm -hmm. on your state and local elections because that's where the action is. It's not always the national. Start at the local levels. Right. That's where you get the most traction a lot of times. So you need to know who people are that are running to represent you. And before you give them that power to do that, know where they stand. And so, Nicole, if anyone in the listening audience wants to find you, how would they find you? So I am on LinkedIn. Uh, and my name is on the screen, Nicole D. Surrett. You can also go to my website. I made it easy, Miss Constance, uh, healthcoachforme.com. Um, that's also my email address, Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-L-E, at uh, healthcoachforme.com. Uh, and you, I'm, I'm happy to uh, talk to women uh, you know, about their health and wellness goals. I'm happy to do what I can for my bosom buddies and survivor sisters. If you have questions, um, even if they just want to vent, I make myself available because nobody mm -hmm. understands the journey unlike somebody who's been there, done that, and got the pink T-shirt. Exactly, exactly. So, Nicole, I thank you so much for coming this evening and sharing with us and educating us 
enlightening us because there's so much. There is so much. And I thank you so much for coming. And to the listening audience, again, October is ending, but the fight against breast cancer is continuing. And here at the Speakeasy Podcast, we will stay in the fight and we will continue in the fight. And so until next week, may God continue to bless you richly today, tomorrow, and always. And have a good evening. And Nicole, again, thank you. Thanks, Ms. Constance.